I feel like listening to music with other people, whether it's a couple of other people or whether it's at a concert, is a little bit like the difference between doing meditation by yourself and and meditation in a group. It is somehow more powerful to have company in that. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. What does a performer do when she can't perform? For Karen Kevra, she becomes a storyteller. Kevra is a Grammy-nominated flutist and founder and artistic director of Capital City Concerts in Montpelier. When COVID shuttered performance venues last year, she searched for a new way to connect with her audience. Kevra has performed throughout the U.S., Canada, and Europe, including performances at Carnegie Hall and the French Embassy in Washington, D.C., She launched a podcast, Muse Mentors, a series of beautifully crafted interviews with artists, activists, and thinkers, in which she explores the transformative role that mentors have played in their lives. Kevra credits her own mentor with changing the course of her life. As an adult, Kevra sought out a teacher, Louis Moise, a renowned flutist, composer, and co-founder of the Marlboro Music Festival. Their musical relationship blossomed into a lifelong friendship until Moise's death in 2007 at the age of 94. Karen Kevra and Capital City Concerts returned to doing live performances this fall, but she plans to continue her podcast and exploration of mentors. I began by asking Kevra to describe her own mentors. Really, my first mentor was my elementary school band teacher, Mrs. Barber, from uh, Somerset, New Jersey. Uh, And I loved her. And because I loved her, I fell in love with music. And that's really the thing that got me on my path. But I made my way as a musician. I really knew, I think, the day I got the flute in my hands that I wanted to be a musician. And so I studied and practiced hard all through high school into college uh, and beyond. And I had, I had plenty of, of really good teachers who maybe mentored me in some ways, but, you know, I think there's a difference between a teacher and a mentor and a mentor is someone who I think helps to shape you, who becomes a part of your life and, and really in some ways, shows you how to live life. And that was the case really for my most important mentor, Louis Moise. Now, you dis- you say that you knew you wanted to be a musician or going to music, but you didn't follow a very straight line to becoming a musician. So, there was some serious uh, meandering uh, through life before you decided to get serious. So, Talk a little bit about your journey. Sure. Well, I think I'm still meandering. I think it's it's my nature. I am easily distracted. Uh, I tend to to really fall for things that interest me and things that I love, and and especially creative pursuits. Uh, I have for my whole life been someone who loves and kind of lives to grow things, whether it's a huge vegetable garden or, or flowers or perennials, that 
is so important to me and I think feeds me as a musician. So uh, I, I did go to music school for a brief while and was very, you know, serious and dedicated. And then I fell and broke my arm and pretty badly and had to, to leave school. Uh, and that was when I got on the path of, of, um, farming. I, back in the mid eighties, did a couple of farm inter, a couple of farm internships in, uh, uh, Western Massachusetts and really developed, uh, you know, an understanding for, for how to grow things and, and a love for it and was around farm animals and, and very much loved that. Uh, and so that diverted me a bit, but, you know, during that time, I also very much got into contra dancing, which is a New England tradition. And then I was drawn into playing for contra dances. So I was playing two, three times a week, you know, jigs and reels at you know, high speed. And, and I really believe that I developed my low register on the flute during that time and a, and a facility for speed. Uh, so uh, although I, I certainly didn't give up music, my attention changed, I think, to some degree. And this is when you're in your 20s? Mm-hmm. So how did you go about finding Louis Moise? And we should sort of set the scene here a little bit. This is not just your neighborhood flute teacher. This is a world-renowned pedagogue and uh, musical impresario um, who comes from a, uh, you know, a a very vaunted family. Um, His father, Marcel Moise, um, you know, is a, is a, sort of the the granddaddy of a whole school of flute playing. So how do you find your way to Louis Moise's door? Well, in some ways, I kind of met Louis Moise as a kid. Uh, He is a, was a composer and uh, published many exercise books and collections. In fact, uh, the most widely published collection of flute music as a volume called Flute Music by French Composers. And that was something that he put together in the seventies. So I had this library full of, of his editions. And I, you know, I was always staring at his name as a kid, you know, I used to think Louis Moisey, you know, who, who's that, you know, and then you get older and you begin to kind of ask questions and research things. So it became apparent to me that he really was a significant personality in the flute world. Uh, and so I knew that he was no longer in Vermont. Louis Moise was one of the founders of the Marlboro Music Festival, along with his father, Marcel, and his ex-wife, Blanche Moise, and Rudolf Serkin, and Hermann and Adolf Busch. But he had a uh, break up with his wife and ended up leaving Vermont and settled with his new wife, Janet Moise, on the other side of Lake Champlain in the Adirondacks uh, in Westport, New York. And I had known he was there, but somehow I hadn't been able to work up my courage to, to call him. He really felt to me like this you know, this legend, this God in the flute world. So it took me a little time, but uh, finally picked up the phone one day and his wife, Janet, answered. And I 
explained who I was and set up a time. And I drove from my home in Montpelier over to Westport, New York. And I remember that day like the back of my hand. It was it was around this time of, of year. I, I think it was late September, actually. And I remember the foliage and beautiful blue skies and the sunshine and driving down their locust tree-lined driveway and being greeted warmly by Janet and having her introduce me to Louie. I'll never forget walking in into his uh, practice room. He was sitting at the piano. He was a really extraordinary pianist. And every morning, uh, you know, of his retirement, he would spend a few hours practicing Beethoven piano sonatas. So I walked into the room and I couldn't see him. He couldn't see me because he had so much music piled up on the piano. But I stood there and I waited for him to finish. And I came around the side of the piano and he smiled at me and I smiled back and I thought, my life is about to change. And so it did. We had uh, an instantaneous connection. I, I still remember playing what I played for him that day. It was a, a box sonata and one of these flashy French conservatory flute pieces. I played kind of a mini concert for him and he listened very intently with his eyes closed. And when I finished, he opened his eyes and he said to me, why did you come here? And I thought that that was a completely fair and natural question. I've told that to people before who've said, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> he didn't run for the door when you heard that. But uh, I didn't even have to really think about it. It just sort of tumbled out of my mouth. I said, because I want to understand music. And we started in, I would drive there once a week for a number of months. I think it was every Monday. Sometimes I would stay for lunch and then I'd hop in my car and drive back to Montpelier and I would greet my first student at the door and begin my afternoon teaching. It was such an exciting time. He was unbelievably inspiring, a kind of, I don't know, tactile teacher, I suppose, in some ways. But I just remember I was on fire during that time. When you said, I want to understand music, at this point, you have a lot of music and musical understanding under your belt. It may be uh, a little homegrown with your <laughs> claw playing for, uh, you know, clogging and and um, and things like that, or contra dances. But um, what exactly did you mean by that? That you wanted to understand music? I don't think I fully got it. Um, I was well trained and could, you know, pretty much play anything you set in front of me if I had the time to work it up and practice it. But I felt like it was missing a, I don't know, like there was a emotional disconnect there. And I think he heard that in my playing too. And over the course of working with him, the, the way in which he was inspiring, the way he would evoke the sounds of of bells and the way that he would he would talk about inflection and you know stressing certain notes and changing colors um and also the way he would respond 
when I would get something, there was such joy, you know, to get that kind of what felt like tactile reinforcing was amazing. But, you know, I also did become a part of his life and we, we spent a lot of time together and we listened to music together constantly. And, you know, I, I feel like listening to music with other people, whether it's a couple of other people or whether it's at a concert is a little bit like the difference between doing meditation by yourself and, and meditation in a group. It is somehow more powerful to have company in that. And so I felt like there was a kind of transfusion that, that happened in the course of, of working with him. You know, it wasn't that I needed to, you know, learn, uh, etudes or, you know, necessarily do any more work on scales or even, even tone work. All of that was set, but there was a quality of, of life that came as a result of working with him. How do you think you changed both as a musician and as a person from before your mentor, Louis Moise, and after? Well, I think it's kind of everything that that I was just saying in, in some ways, um, that feeling of, of being on fire. And Louis would say these two phrases to me. Often in our lessons, he would say, be alert, be aware. And that really stuck with me, not, not just in music, but in life. He was, he was a very tuned in person, not just to music, but the world. I, I remember, you know, I mentioned bells before and how he would use bells, um, as kind of a metaphor for producing a beautiful ringing sound, but he was visiting me one day in the summertime. I was, we were sitting out on, on my porch, uh, at my home in Montpelier. It was a, a beautiful summer day in the afternoon. And when he visited and when I visited him, it wasn't an hour. It was usually <laughs> four or five, six hours. We really took the time. And at one point, the bells from downtown Montpelier began to ring and he noticed and he said, Oh, you are so lucky that you can hear the bells. And I said, really, why is that? He said, because if you live somewhere where you can hear the bells, then you're blessed. I want to talk about this COVID year for you. You are a performer, um, the founder and director of Capital City Concerts. Um, but you're a performer who hasn't been able to perform. What has that been like for you? It's been hard. You know, I used to really obsess and worry about the things that could get into the way that could get in the way of having concerts like bad weather or someone's car breaking down, you know, or a conflict with, with another date. But <laughs> here we are having been completely shut down. And I really relied on that time for important connections in my life with the musicians that I would invite to come and play often with me. And they would come and stay in my house with me for a number of days. And we would rehearse and take walks and have wonderful meals together from the garden. Uh, and 
all of that went away. But the other thing that went away was that regular connection with our audience, our Capital City Concerts audience in Montpelier and sometimes in Burlington is, it feels like my family. And it's one of the things that makes the concerts so special, I think, for everyone involved is this sense of coming together, a kind of sense of communion. Uh, we have performers who often come back from one year to the next, and they get to know members of the community. And we really do all feel like one family. So that was all cut off. And I hardly left home uh, for that period of the first year. I think I put gas in my car twice <laughs> for the period of a year. That's how how yeah. homebound I was. And I love my home and it's a beautiful, wonderful place to be, but I was starting to go kind of nuts. Hmm. When did you decide to go in this whole other direction and start a podcast, Muse Mentors, which uh, I have to tell you is very quickly became, has become one of my favorite podcasts. And I can't help but think there is such a connection between your artistry as a musician and the sensibility that you bring to your conversations with other artists or sometimes newsmakers such as, you know, Bill McKibben, but often artists. Um, so tell me about when you came up with the idea, but also how you your performing self expresses itself through your podcast. Mm, what a great question. And, and thank you for your kind words. You're so generous. Um, well, it's tied into what I said before, which is that suddenly I wasn't going to see my audience anymore. And very much wanted to stay connected and very much wanted to con continue to offer them something. And I, you know, I began to reflect a lot of, on my life in music and of course was thinking about my mentor, Louis Moise and how important he was to me. And it was a period of time where I think, uh, I was really relying on podcasts for distraction, but I was listening to a lot of political podcasts and they were they were difficult and heavy and they were really kind of making things worse. They were bringing me down. So I started to turn to podcasts like Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, which I love, um, Shankar Vedantin's um, Hidden Brain, where these podcasts would would weave sometimes music and sound effects into into interviews. And for me, there there's a sort of spark that comes with with having those sound effects and, and having music, uh, you know, either inserted or, or underlaying the interviews. And I thought that's the kind of style that I would like. And I really want to offer my audience something uplifting right now, you know, food for the soul. And, you know, let's face it, it's, it's the connections that we have with other human beings that are so important. So my hope is that this would inspire other people, you know, whatever they were doing, wherever they were on their path, whether they were young and starting careers or retired, retired and finishing them. So that's how it got going. Do you think that, um, well, tell me about one of your interviews that stands out to you and maybe just something someone told you. Mm. 
Well, I guess the one that in some ways means the most to me was the one that I did with Jim Blair, who was a dear friend uh, and neighbor, really. He was a retired National Geographic photographer, a, a rare staff photographer at the National Geographic for 35 years. Uh, he ended up retiring with his wife to Middlebury, so he lives nearby. And you may have noticed that I'm using the past tense, and that's because he died about two weeks after our episode dropped. Hmm. Um, there was a sense of urgency to make that episode happen quickly. I wanted to get it out before his 90th birthday, but he was quite sick. Uh, he was on supplemental oxygen. You can even hear that if you listen to the podcast. It's kind of purring in the background the whole time. But this is a guy who took pictures for the National Geographic that I remember staring at as a little kid in my suburban New Jersey neighborhood when the National Geographic would come. I would flip through and look at these beautiful photographs and, you know, often landscapes, but often faces. It was it was kind of the faces that stayed with me. And these images that I look at them now and I realize Jim took those photographs. That he took one of the iconic photographs of Martin Luther King uh, giving his I Have a Dream speech. There's uh, another one that I remember being freaked out by as a kid. It's a an image of a Bangladeshi boy somersaulting into a body of water that's teeming with with horned cattle. Really mm. incredible. There's another one. I'm sure everyone would remember this one. It was um, one of the Queen's birthday celebrations, and they had the the trooping of the guards. So there are all these soldiers lined up with with those you know crazy big tall hats. And they're all standing at attention, and it was a hot day, and that's a hot thing to wear. And one of the members of the guard passed out, but he passed out absolutely at attention. So you see him lying there in this chain of other other soldiers. Really, really quite extraordinary. So I wanted to ask him about, you know, his life uh, as a photographer and how he got started, and he had amazing stories about his mentors. Uh, he actually got his start at National Geographic. His very first gig was was to be uh, the staff photographer on board the Calypso with Jacques Cousteau. Hmm. Quite amazing. But, you know, he th this particular episode, I think, I'm certain he knew it was a swan song. And he, he told me an incredibly touching story, which is at the end, the very end of the episode, where he described a dream he had had recently about being on a, on a carousel, the idea of, and this wasn't something that I, I knew about, but apparently there's a, a brass ring that, that hangs on a carousel. And when you go around, if you reach over and you reach far enough and you can grab that brass ring, then you get another ride. Hmm. And he had, um, you know, an experience one night when he was quite sick where he thought he really was staring death in the face and, and willed himself to kind of grab that brass ring, which he did. And, you know, he did live, live longer. He made it to his 90th birthday, which he wanted, but, 
Uh, he was such a dear, inspiring man, and it's uh, it's very deeply touching. So so many of them that I've done, I've loved. You know, the one I did with uh, Lou Cosma, who's a really dear friend and conductor of of uh, the Vermont Philharmonic, and talking about his experience his experiences, you know, in, in what was his day job for about 35 years playing bass in the Metropolitan Orca- Opera Orchestra and hearing him describe these storied world famous singers that he had worked with, you know, Joan Sutherland and Domingo and Luciano Pavarotti. And so for that episode, it was a blast to actually weave in the sounds of, of these singers singing. Capital City Concerts is going to be resuming in-person concerts, although I gather at half density uh, in the audience. So you are going to sort of resume your, I won't say former life, it's your life that was paused, but you're different now. You've been doing some other things a lot. Uh, How would you describe the performer and the person that you are now as you return to concertizing? What are the words from the Joni Mitchell song? Don't it always seem to go, you don't know what you've lost till it's gone? <laughs> I think that there will be a sense of presence that comes with performing, being with my friends that I perform with, being with the audience. And I think that we're all going to listen with a different sense of immediacy because, you know, the concerts could go away again. You know, we have them scheduled and, and it's looking good for them to happen. But I think we will listen more attentively and appreciate that experience all the more for having lost it for so long. Mm-hmm. Well, Karen Kevra, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.